Wait, and this will be edited and trimmed down and stuff as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. totally. In case I dropped the F-bomb. <laughs> well, I can always, yeah, I'll always fired up out. about the parks. Welcome to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. You're listening to Mountain Meister, and you may recognize that voice. My name's Alex Honnold. Is it working? Alex and I sat down in Washington, D.C. before the American Alpine Club's annual benefit dinner, where he was the keynote speaker. In today's episode, you'll first hear our interview and then his talk at that dinner. The topic of today's discussion is the 100-year anniversary of America's National Parks, often referred to as America's Best Idea. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and this is Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister is supported by Mountain House, who reminds you to savor the adventure. Do you think buttermilk biscuits with gravy and pork patty crumbles sounds nice after a long day of hiking? Me too, which is why I'm eating it right now. And let me tell you, it's delightful. Mm. Mountain House is offering an exclusive deal to our listeners, and that's 20% off of your purchase. For the super secret code, go to mountainhouse.com slash meister. Again, that's mountainhouse.com slash meister. And thanks. Okay, we're here celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the National Parks. Um, you're the keynote tonight at the Benefit Dinner, AAC Benefit Dinner. Um, just talk about your connection with the National Parks, um, why they're important to you. Well, so I think uh, my talk tonight will be focused on the National Parks as well. But, um, I mean, parks have been a huge part of my entire outdoor experience. I mean, from when I was a little kid until present, you know, most of my most you know, all my formative outdoor experiences are in national parks, basically mm-hmm. going camping as a kid, going adventuring as a, as a teenager, you know, now climbing full time, like it's all in, in parks or if not actual national parks, then other sorts of, you know, federally protected land mm-hmm. or, or, you know, open spaces, BLM land, whatever. We, ha- we but, actually had a question from our, one of our listeners. He said, what's the difference between um, your experiences in a national park versus more of a wilderness area where the access isn't the same? Um, I mean, it's funny because a lot of people prefer true wilderness because it's like, well, it's more wild by definition. Um, and it's more just remote and rugged, you know, like flying into the bush in Alaska. I mean, a lot of people like that. I love the national park experience where you have paved trails to the tops of things. Um, which is partially just because of, I guess my general attitude towards maybe, you know, I don't like love wildness as much as some people do. I love the experiences that I get to have in nature and I love, you know, challenging myself and, and that might have to do with, you know, my background as a gym climber and things like that. And, you know, climbing is more of like a sport and less of a, less of an exploration, I guess, mm-hmm. even though obviously there are elements of both for me, but, um, yeah, I mean, I like having nice infrastructure and I mean, that's part of why I love Yosemite so much and then choose not to go on expeditions to say Pakistan you know, places where you have to trek for weeks into the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and then have, you know, I mean, just camping on a glacier. It's like, I find that not nearly as comfortable as like walking down and going to the grocery store in the Valley when you're done with like a big climb. I got that vibe in your book, yeah. right? Was it Greenland or something? Or uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland was Newfoundland, one of the yeah. trips. Yeah. yeah. Where we traveled super far and then camped in terrible weather and to climb on worse rock than I could have had in Yosemite. And I was like, yeah. why don't I just stay in the valley and climb? What's the fun if you can't engage in the good stuff? Yeah. I, I mean, because I'm in it like for the quality of the climbing mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's hard to beat when, and I guess it's always a ratio between the amount of hassle you're willing to go through, you know, to the quality and national parks are like, it's hard to, hard to beat the ratio there. Right. There's no yeah. hassle. Great climbing. 
if you had the opportunity to travel down the street and talk in front of a bunch of legislatures, <laughs> what, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to communicate to them? I would definitely put a lot more preparation into a talk like that. <laughs> um, just because, you know, I assume that they would not find the whole outdoor adventure spirit all that compelling. You know, mm-hmm. I'd probably like find a slightly more compelling argument for them in, in defense of wild spaces, you mm-hmm. know, the whole economic side of it or whatever. Um, I don't know, but I mean, there are plenty of different arguments for, for protecting wild spaces. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and also there are some arguments for not protecting wild places. Um, I'm curious. You mean since, developing? Uh, yeah. Developing yeah, and sure. the mining. Mm-hmm. How, how do we connect on this issue? How do you communicate the meaning that, I mean, you've, you have, yeah, it's, you it's have climbed your entire life and made a living. That, um, the environmental issues have become so political like that because, mm-hmm. I mean, 50 years ago, it wasn't nearly as right. as polarized. You know, everybody could get behind protecting clean air or clean water and things, you know, because obviously those issues affect all people. It's kind of too bad that they've sort of been claimed by the left and so rejected by the right mm-hmm. because it doesn't really need to be that way because, you know, and there are a lot of places in the country and in the world where it makes economic sense to protect an area just for tourism money or, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever, like the, like basically it's a resource that's better exploited through, right. through tourism than it is through mining or whatever. Like now, I mean, you know, global coal prices are taking a dump, you know, like coal mining is not the future. Everybody can clearly see that coal is like losing, like it would never make sense to, you know, like clear cut a mountain, you know, well, you know, like mountaintop removal style, like to create a coal mine, like it just it's not it's not economical now. Right. Like it doesn't make any sense and it's like it's better to use that land, you know, for anything else really, but like outdoor wreck or whatever, or even just preserve the landscape just because it raises property values or who knows what. Um it's just too bad that those issues have been like taken by one side or another. I, I had an idea for a, a project for you, a video project. Mm. I think that you should grab a CEO of an oil and drilling uh, somebody who wants to maybe take over a, an endangered area for for their profitability purposes, and then you show them your climbing. They engage in that natural space. You see if I can arrange a climbing accident for them. No, not an accident. Like, no, they, oh, I think that they'll. I think the that they will appreciate your climbing. <laughs> I think they'll see what you do, and and they'd be like, "Wow, that's interesting." But I can make seventy five million dollars by destroying this whole region. They'd well, like, but well, then, <laughs> but then you yeah. then in turn need to listen to them and talk about why they want to what they want to do with this area. And then you go camping overnight. You get outside of your comfort zone. And then at the end of the project, everybody's listening to everybody. What do you think? I think that sounds lovely, but like nobody would give a shit. Nobody. You, you know, don't no, think like a CEO the audience would? Like, I'm not going camping. You like, don't think he lame. would? You, know, no. you say, no. yeah, I have the best rock climber in the world. We're going to take you out, show you what he does. You don't I'd, think I'd, he'd be, I'd interested be interested in that? I don't know. The thing is, like, I just don't think that that would actually change. And also, I mean, um, so it's interesting. So I'm friends with a guy in Colorado whose who's brother basically invented fracking, mm-hmm. um, who like, you know, figured like, I don't know, pioneered a bunch of the technique behind fracking, which mm-hmm. has obviously led to all the natural gas boom stuff. Right. And, um, and they're both like big outdoorsmen, love skiing, love climbing, mm-hmm. you know, super, you know, great outdoorsmen or like outdoor athletes, whatever you want to call them. Um, but very right, you know, and very, very stoked on drilling. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for them, those like go hand in hand, you know, because they see booming natural gas in the u.s is strengthening national security you know energy independence for the u.s like right. they see that as all good things and you know i mean they see it as a good thing to to use our open lands to 
you know, so like when they see when they see a beautiful landscape, do they say, "Wow, I wonder what kind of resources we can harvest from that," or do they say, "Wow, I want to get engage in that recreationally?" Well, the thing is, I mean, even I wonder about that to some extent. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Because like, if you can drill in an in a in obtrusive manner and like not damage the natural resource, you know, I'm like power to you. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that I don't mind putting windmills on like open areas because mm-hmm. i'm like well you have to generate power from something i'd much rather that it comes from the wind than say from from coal just because overall it's less harm to the the whole world mm-hmm. um you know i mean it's all it's all trade-offs like uh you know toilet paper like that's sweet that comes from <laughs> right. trees like obviously those trees are being cut down somewhere it's just a matter of like which forests are sacrificed for for my tp or like building my home or wh- whatever you know yep um yeah i mean it's all yeah, it's all trade-offs. So when we talk about people wanting pr- to protect these natural places, a lot of times um, that comes from their personal experiences in those places and how they engage. You started off as a gym climber, made your way to uh, mm-hmm. being an outdoors climber, and that tends to be, I mean, there, the gym climbing population is growing rapidly. Um, so we have a lot of people who are climbing but not necessarily experiencing these places to then want to protect them. Mm-hmm. How do we get more people outside? I mean, that's like a big thing that the North Face is like getting behind outdoor participation. I mean, part of that's just ensuring that there is an outdoor market, you know, in the future, because I mean, all the demographic trends are towards kids not getting outside that much, not, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying parks as much. Um, I don't know. The thing is, I've never really, I, mean, I hate to really say it, but I've never really cared that much. Like, I don't really feel like it's my, my calling to hmm. get people outside. You know, I mean, if people are motivated by it, then, then power to them. And I mean, I think it's important that, that, you know, there are federal lands available. You know, I, I think it's important to protect wild spaces and like leave, leave parks open and everything. But if, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's something that you have to push on people though and be like, you need to Mm. go to these parks. You know, I mean, they're there, they're available. If people are inspired by them, power to them. So how did you, how did, what, what made you want to do it? Uh, I mean, I grew up, you know, camping and hiking. My mm-hmm. family was all into it. Um, and, you know, we lived near the Sierra, so we'd, like, go up to the mountains and go to Yosemite. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so, I mean, it was just, like, part of my whole upbringing. Yeah. I guess the argument but, is that if you don't experience that as a child through your parents, mm-hmm. how do you even know that it exists? Yeah, how do you know it's an option? Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's it's just not really, like... I don't see it as my thing to, mm-hmm. to push people to get outside in the same way that I wouldn't want somebody else pushing me to get into say like martial arts or something, right, you know, which right, I'm right. sure can be like a very rewarding activity, but it's like, it's not, it's my not your, it's not, yeah. it's not for you. Yeah. Um, so uh, on that note, since you are, I mean, even beyond rock climbing, you're gaining public appeal. What, how do you decide where you're going to put your which advocacy? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an interesting question because, and you see that with like Hollywood celebrities, like which causes they choose, like why some people care about rhinos. And I'm like, who cares about rhinos when they're like fundamental issues, uh-huh. you know, like, um, yeah. So, I mean, the things that I sort of care about, and I mean, I started the Hano Foundation to sort of address some of these environmental issues, but basically, um, I mean, I guess I've sort of gotten into energy access for, for people just because I sort of see that as one of the most basic human needs and one of the simplest forms of development i guess for people and and a big part of that's just been through all the travel for expeditions you know going to different parts of the world mm-hmm. and like seeing the developing world and just thinking about i mean i i just see it as like what's the most good you can do for somebody's life um the most cheaply <laughs> you know like right, what's right. the easiest way to do good for somebody 
or to, to help them lead a right you know healthier more productive life there's a, there's a great podcast episode there's a whole organization that's devoted to figuring out what the most economically efficient what, uh, what free economics there's a free economics episode oh, yeah. about it and what's the organization i forget that i, huh. I could look it up right now um but it's it's they basically do all this research and figure out what has the largest impact per dollar yeah it, um have you read the book uh the life you can save by no. peter singer mm-hmm. it's like really good and he also has like a ted talk it's a 20 minute summary of the book mm-hmm. basically but it's um it's a super good book and it, i mean it comes down to a lot of the same issues i mean he starts with the starts the book with a bunch of thought experiments about um if you're like walking past a lake and you're in your brand new suit going to work and you see a child drowning is it acceptable to just walk past the lake and let the child drown because you're like, well, it would have inconvenienced me five minutes and I would have gotten my suit dirty and that has a a certain expense. And then he basically just goes on to show that's essentially what we're doing in in the developed world by just ignoring the plight of the poor. Right. Um, Which is, so I've, I've had a lot of trouble thinking about that because it's exactly the situation. You can donate $10 to save a life. Yeah, totally. I mean, or maybe not 10 actually, because when he breaks it all down, you're all like, oh, you know, it's kind of reasonable. But yeah, like mosquito netting and things like that, mm-hmm, right. where it's like it directly saves people's lives. But it's just but so intangible that it's hard think to, that yeah, way, though. exactly. We? It's hard, like, well, it's hard to think that way. I mean, you certainly can. But. Like you can't tell somebody to, or you can't expect somebody to not buy their morning coffee because that would then uh, you could tell somebody okay don't eat for a day and you can save somebody's life it's essentially what it is right because if you don't spend the money on the food yeah you could well, donate but it's that a lot money, easier but... to say don't buy frivolous consumer items when you know like basically don't buy shit you don't need mm-hmm. when there are so many people literally dying in the world but that's a big part of wh- why travel is helpful and things like that you know because then you see directly the impact and mm-hmm. you're like wow maybe I shouldn't buy this like random stuff that I don't need. Mm-hmm. Travel more. That's a good piece of advice. Well, no, but then that's actually a terrible piece <laughs> right. of advice too with impact and everything. But you know, I mean, it, it's it, yeah, it's all, it all balances. Uh, yeah. No, it's but, like, because uh, I've traveled a lot, I'm now like pretty stoked to, to try to do something positive uh-huh. I guess, to mitigate all the travel. Do you find yourself thinking about this kind of stuff a lot? Yeah. I mean, I've certainly read a lot about it and I'm yeah. like pretty stoked on it. And then, I mean, which is why this interview is taking a turn way towards. The I know. I'm, just, I'm realizing yeah. that we're not talking yeah, about like the national not. parks anymore. That's actually one of the things that everyone always wants to talk about like, outdoor, outdoor participation or like, how do you get kids outside? How do you get kids to parks? And I'm kind of like, well, how do you get kids out of poverty? Hmm. You know what I mean? Because like nobody enjoys parks unless they have a certain standard of living, you know, unless they actually have a comfortable life where their needs are met. You know, I mean, I was able to enjoy parks as a kid because I come from a middle class white family in California. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents are teachers that have lots of time off. We go go out in the summer and it's like totally chill. You know, how do you get people into a comfortable enough lifestyle like that that they can enjoy nature and, you know, appreciate it and all that? Yeah. I don't know. No, it's a great point. So it's, I mean, obviously a, an issue. We have a quick rapid fire question. We're almost done here. Second favorite national park? I think my second favorite national park is Zion. Okay. Uh, Yosemite is obviously the first. Right, right. <laughs> we, I think everybody yeah. knows that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> what, what national park have you not been to that you'd like to go to? Uh, I'm not sure. Honestly, uh, I think that actually some of the beautiful places in the States that I haven't been, I'm not even sure if they're national parks mm-hmm. or not. You know, like some places that are just like beautiful mountains. I'm like, is that a park or is that a forest service or who knows what that is? Right, right. Um, but I don't know really. 
I don't know if I've ever been to Glacier National Park. I feel like I should go there before all the glaciers are gone. Right, right. That <laughs> was on, on the list of one of the oh, parks you need to visit before. My sister's it's, been there a couple yeah. times, and she always talks about how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like there isn't really climbing there, so I've never really motivated. But maybe someday. Yeah, that's interesting. But, I mean, that's how you that's how you participate in the parks mm-hmm. is by climbing. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, this is so. I have a roommate. His name's Max, and I ask him before every interview if he has a question for the person mm. uh, coming on. So his question for you is: If you had the opportunity to name a new national park, what would you name it? I, mean, I don't know. It depend on the place. So a, a, a dream national park. If you you close your oh, eyes, oh, oh, you mean if you I could close choose your an area eyes, that becomes a park exactly. And so you oh, close your eyes. I mean, obviously has three thousand feet of granite like Yosemite, right? Mm. Um, what wait, wait, you, am I just making a fantasy park? You're making you're making a fantasy park, and then at the end of it, you have to tell me what it's what it's named, what you're naming this park. Oh man, I would make five thousand foot granite walls above easy easy glaciers. Basically, I would I would call it Patagonia Land. It would mm. be like a more kids friendly version of Patagonia, with like slightly smaller approaches, slightly nicer infrastructure, maybe like a slightly more developed town at the base. Uh huh. Basically, like Yosemite Valley with Patagonian sized walls and no vegetation, just like <laughs> glacier and granite. Yeah, great. It'd, and, be, it'd be Patagonia land. And w- would it'd it be, be like the perfect fantasy land? Would it be located anywhere in the country? Any any particular um, geographic area? Let's see. Maybe like right outside. Well, I'm trying to think of perfect sun all the time, mm. but n- not too hot. I was like maybe outside of San Diego or something. Right. Right. You know, or mm-hmm. like right on the coast in LA. Yeah, <laughs> well, good, so good access. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or somewhere with a good airport. Um, I don't know. Maybe like outside of Vegas. Patagonia land. Yeah, Patagonia <laughs> Keep land. Keep an eye out here. My new park. <laughs> um, yeah. Somewhere where it never rains. Yeah, you don't like rain. Mm. No. <laughs> but the glaciers can just be artificially fed. <laughs> okay, so final question. You're speaking right now to a group of outdoors enthusiasts um, who don't exactly have the ability to travel and see the world the the way that you do. Um, do you have any advice for people in ways, in ways that they can uh, care more about the national parks going forward without necessarily being able to see them whenever they want um well i mean no matter where somebody is listening to this from there's some kind of a national park near them you know i mean even in the midwest there there are national parks that i don't know about them as well (laughs) but um but you know every state has its parks and they're always like beautiful wild spaces and and even things that aren't national parks but just parks you know somewhere like manhattan you can still get to central park and enjoy like Mm -hmm. at least some semblance of of vegetation (laughs) like oh trees at least there's something green i i was was running down the charles river in boston yes or a couple of days ago and mm -hmm. i'm like this is so cool that i can literally run here and see like a pretty nice looking area i mean every city has like the nice bike paths there's yeah. something going on there's always somewhere where you can get out and like enjoy enjoy nature to some extent mm-hmm. um yeah i mean honestly i've probably seen fewer national parks than a lot of like retired enthusiasts you know people that like travel the country and like explicitly try to visit parks mm-hmm. because i've been so limited by the climbing in them you know like i've spent years of my life in yosemite and yet you know i've spent zero time in sequoia king's canyon which is just south of it mm-hmm. it's supposed to be just as beautiful but i don't think i've been there since i was a little kid camping with my family because there's just like no real climbing there and i'm like why would i go there when i could be yeah. in somebody well but for you out there replace climbing with whatever you want to do 
I guess is the, a good message well, here. You should get my talk tonight. Yeah, so I I look forward yeah. to it. I will be there. Um, Alex Honnold, thank you so much for talking to us. I am. My pleasure. You can find the links to the books, podcast episodes, and everything else we discussed at mtnmeister.com. Our full library of the other 167 episodes are also there, or they're on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next up is Alex's keynote, but first, if you want to go on an adventure of your own, consider signing up for a Summit for Someone Climb to benefit big city mountaineers. The first person that signs up is going to get $100 off an Osprey Kestrel 48-liter pack, plus Big Agnes is now involved. They want a piece of the action, and they have graciously decided to give that person a 15-degree sleeping bag and the Q-Core SL sleeping pad. That's the one that I use, and my God, I could fall asleep just talking about it. That's a $650 value for the first person to use the code MEISTER100. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, ben at mtnmeister.com. Now time for Alex's keynote. This was recorded at the American Alpine Club's 2016 annual benefit dinner presented by the North Face and REI. Special thanks to National Geographic. Here's Conrad Anker to welcome him. Yup. It was going to be frozen couscous on the menu tonight because we're alpine climbers, but the host committee wasn't going to have it. But every generation has a climber that defines that generation, and it's great to see that the sport progresses with each generation. There's a new practitioner that does something remarkable and exceptional. And for what's going on right now where we've had the opportunity to reflect and see how bold our friends and colleagues were in 1966 in the first ascent of Vincent to where we are now with uh, climbing changing in an ever dynamic way. There's one fellow that stands above everyone else, and that's Alex Hanold. And he sort of, everyone woke up and was like, wow, he soloed Moonlight, which is 512 Sandy with insecure face climbing to get up to it. Just doing it makes my hands sweat. And then he went up and soloed Half Dome. And just to kind of as a statement of Half Dome of how badass that is, <clears throat> I have to use that terminology here, Half Dome shed a layer. So no one's going to be able to do that again. <laughs> it's a different climb now. And then um, on Sendero Luminoso, a climb in our... Um, Good neighbors of Mexico. It's um, tenuous limestone face climbing. Again, <laughs> my hands are sweaty just thinking about it. But um, it's more than that. Alex is a, a, a genuinely great person. He lives in his van. He's dedicated to knowledge, living a, a healthy and pure life. And we're honored that we have someone that represents climbing to the broader audience with the gracious nature and the humble nature of Alex. So, here's Alex. I've got to say, sorry, it's a little, a little intimidating coming up in front of this crowd, especially after such a long and uh, 
and meaningful evening. I'm, I'm surprised how moving all the other talks were. And um, this, this talk will not be moving like that. Um, <laughs> this, will be, this will be slightly lighter. Um, but I do have a profound quote that I pulled out from uh, FDR, of all people, after hearing all of Secretary Jewell's talk quotes from uh, John Muir and everything. I'm glad that I did a little bit of research. And uh, FDR, who was an early proponent of the Park Service, said, uh, for a good talk, you should be sincere, be concise, and be seated. And that is my, uh, <laughs> that is my approach to speaking. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the centennial. And uh, I decided to make this presentation with strictly national park photos. So um, this is a little bit of an overview of my own climbing and what the parks, what the, what the parks in the U.S. have meant to, to my development as a climber and just to, um, and, and my partners and just sort of my journey told through the national parks. And um, I chose to start with this image just because I feel like this, of all things, just sort of shows the aesthetic. Excuse me. <clears throat> Hold on. Yeah. Um, this, this photo just sort of shows the, the aesthetic inspiration that, that we all draw from these beautiful places and, uh, and how that motivates us to, to push ourselves and just, you know, have adventures in these, in these wild places. Um, sorry, I'm like, I'm very moved by all the last talks. I mean, it's been, it's been a very significant evening where I'm like, wow, it's, uh, this is quite an august group. And... Uh, and it's a little intimidating speaking about all these roots, considering many of the people that put them up are in this room. You know, I'm, I'm used to speaking to groups that, like, don't really know a whole lot about climbing, so I can just be like, oh, it's really badass, and it's like, you overcome fear, and you just do these rad things, and, like, people don't really know the difference. They just see the photos, and they're like, that looks dangerous. But <laughs> in, a, in a room like this, I mean, uh, you know, Jerry Gall was, was talking to me earlier. I mean, he, he established this route in 1956, so it's a little bit embarrassing to stand up here and be like, wow, this is such an amazing adventure that I had, even though, you know, everyone here did it 60 years ago. But, um, anyway. But, but. So, there's, <laughs> yeah, thanks. I used, I used to be a lot cuter. Um, so, I mean, there's been a lot of talk tonight about getting young people out into the parks and, uh, and sharing experiences with nature. And uh, I was lucky enough that my parents, from a very young age, took me camping, took us to, um, I'm pretty sure this is Old Faithful, though I don't actually remember it from, from when I was five or however old. Um, but my parents were both teachers, and so we had the summers off, and we would road, road trip across the country and visit the parks and go camping and go hiking and basically have all the experiences that, that organizations like the AAC are dedicated to providing for, for other you know, kids in the country. And uh, obviously these, these outdoor experiences worked for me, you know, it all uh, definitely got me into the outdoors. Um, and so, you know, I spent my childhood going out, actually, I mean, I spent my whole life going out into the mountains like this. Um, now there's a big gap in the imagery because for about 10 years, I basically climbed in the climbing gym in Sacramento, and that's unfortunately not a national park, so it didn't make the cut. But, um, but if anybody feels like nominating it, you know, it's a beautiful Sacramento, beautiful city, it could, it could be a park. But... Um, but so after growing up in the climbing gym and, and sort of developing as a climber, I basically took that love of the outdoors back outdoors again. Well, once I learned how to drive, basically, I took uh, my passion back outdoors. Uh, climbing in places like Joshua Tree, which uh, at the time was only a monument, but is now a national park. Um, and, and basically I started free soloing, which, as many of you know, you know, it's kind of what I'm, what I'm known for or whatever. Um, 
but I mean, a big part of that was just because I was antisocial at the time and didn't, you know, I just didn't really have any friends. And so I would just go, <laughs> go wandering around, scrambling. And uh, I mean, that's the angstful teenage years. But um, a big part of my inspiration with the soloing, though, was people like Peter Croft and iconic images like this of Peter soloing the rostrum, which is in Yosemite, which is why this made the cut. It's all about national parks in this, in this presentation. But um, I mean, I grew up seeing imagery like this, seeing Peter alone on, these, on a wild wall like this. This is the top of the rostrum. And uh, I just, I wanted to experience that. I wanted to experience that feeling of being a tiny little dot on a big sea of rock, just, you know, alone. In that, that duality of feeling extremely small and extremely vulnerable, I guess, you know, on the side of like a big uncaring mountain, but at the same time feeling totally badass, uh, you know, feeling extremely confident in your own abilities, being able to hold onto the wall and just be like, this is, this is what I do, this is what I'm good at, like, this is why I'm up here. And just that, that contrast between, you know, that's kind of always been the appeal with soloing on, on these big walls, is the fact they make you feel so small and yet so big at the same time. But, um, so the rostrum was actually the first wall that, that I soloed as well. Um, in these photos, you can see I'm climbing over another party, which is the only reason I ever got these photos. Uh, this guy randomly found me on the bus later. and was like, oh, wow, I took these photos of you as you climbed over us. And, uh, <laughs> and he sent these to me. So this, this is what it looks like to basically grab somebody's ankles as you get onto a belay ledge. But, um, you know, most of the other photos in this presentation are professional, taken later with, a, you know, somebody like Jimmy Chin shooting, like, amazing high-quality photos. This is what happens when you just randomly stumble upon people on the side of a cliff. And they're like, what are you doing? And just, like, clicking away <laughs> randomly as you go by. But, um, this is a photo of Asterman, which is also an iconic Peter Croft route, um, which was also something that, that I'd grown up looking up to. Well, it's not his route, but he is, was the first to free solo it. And um, in the same way, it was something that, that I'd grown up thinking was basically the the culmination of climbing. You know, I looked at that as that's, that's the peak climbing experience. Though one of the things that, that I love about the parks is the fact that they sort of open up this opportunity to adventure at any level. Um, and you can sort of scale your, your adventure up or down depending how you need it. And so at the same time that I was learning how to free solo and just pushing my own climbing, I also learned how to aid climb, which is I'm sure everybody here has, has done to some extent. Um, just toiling up these huge walls in Yosemite, multiple nights on the wall, camping on ledges, tons of baggage, tons of weight, tons of equipment. And, um, and then also learned how to free climb these walls, which is, you know, this is with a rope and with a belayer on El Capitan. I mean, this is, this is the Salate. Um, beautiful wall. But um, to me, that whole evolution of style from aid climbing to free climbing to free soloing, I mean, to me, it's a very natural progression, and that's been a big part of my, my personal climbing, to just you know, going from just trying to make it up the wall to trying to do it quickly in a day, you know, with a rope but with minimal gear, and then ideally to do it by myself without a gear, um, you know, without, without a rope, whatever. But, um, you know, just it, each, each time, depending on your level of, of skill and comfort, it just really changes the level of adventure that you're having with these places. And I think it's great to have, have spaces available where anybody can go out into them and sort of choose the level that they're comfortable with and then have a super meaningful experience. And I think that's a big part of why I've been back to Yosemite year after year for the last decade. Each season I go back, there's always something slightly more difficult or slightly bigger or a slightly different style in which I can do something that makes it more of an appropriate challenge for me. But, um, anyway, uh, this is Zion National Park, my second favorite park in the country. 
But um, second, second after Yosemite. I mean, Yosemite is off. I mean, come on, it's Yosemite. <laughs> but oh, I mean, like 90% of these images are from Yosemite. But, um, but so this was sort of the first, as, as Conrad in his introduction said, this is sort of the first big wall that I sort of free soloed. And, um, and this is sort of an extension of that style that I'm talking about, going from aid climbing to free climbing and then, and then realizing that I could climb on walls like this without protection if I worked on them enough and made them feel comfortable. And, uh, and I mean, it might not look like it in a photo, but this actually does feel surprisingly secure because a crack like that, you can just, you know, you can just like lock your fingers in there and feel great. But, you know. Anyway, so free soloing big walls for me was sort of like the step forward. And then actually, um, I sort of take a hard, hard turn in another direction here with my good friend Dave Alfrey, who uh, received the Bates Award from the AAC tonight. And, uh, and so this is kind of a funny story. Dave, I didn't know him, didn't know anything about him. And uh, I was driving out of the campground after, I don't know if I can say that here with the National Park, but I was poaching in the campgrounds in Yosemite. And I was driving out in the morning. And uh, Dave just was brushing his teeth and randomly flagged me down and was like, hey, we need to go climbing. And I was like, I don't know you, but, but it just so happened that I didn't really have any projects going on that season. And, and he was sort of a friend of a friend, and, and I'd heard that he'd climbed certain routes, and he was like, he was a big aid climber. I was like, all right, you know, we can, we can go and have an adventure together. And as it turns out, Dave is basically, is probably the best aid climber in the country. And, um, and in all of, our, all of our climbs together, I've learned a lot from him and learned a lot about the whole aid climbing process. And so what I'm talking about with scaling up the adventure and always having like a new step, uh, Dave came up with the idea of trying to climb El Cap seven times in a week, which he called the seven, seven and seven. And it's funny, when he first mentioned it, I was like, well, that doesn't sound very hard because climbing the nose on El Cap only takes, say, four hours if you, if you take it at a sort of recreational pace. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, well, how hard is it to do four hours of exercise every day for a week? Like, that sounds pretty chill. And Dave was like, I don't know, it doesn't sound that easy. But then when I actually thought it through, it turns out there are only really four easy routes on El Cap, and so then you have three other days of the week that you have to fill with hard routes. And so then when you start to count out the hours and the days, you're like, actually, that's a lot of time climbing on El Cap. And, uh, and it was one of those perfect challenges that, that you instantly reject. It's like, no, that's too easy, and then you think about it more, and then you're like, maybe it's too hard. And then you think about it some more, and you're like, well, it's kind of in that sweet spot where you're not totally sure, but you think you can do it. And so um, a couple years ago, Dave and I eventually did the 7 and 7. And uh, this is a hero photo of Dave leading the nipple on Zodiac. You can see he's hanging from some upside-down hook. It's, like, totally terrifying. I once zippered this entire pitch with a different partner. I fell from about where he is and pulled all the gear out on the whole pitch. I was like, well, which is why Dave is leading in this photo. <laughs> you know, which is one of the important things I've learned over the years is choose the right partner and send them up first. But, <laughs> But this is us, I think, somewhere in the middle with epic farmer's tan and feeling very tired after climbing, climbing El Cap five times in a week or something. But, no. but I think that's been, you know, like I said, a big part of what keeps bringing me back to the parks is that there's always some other kind of challenge or a friend who will inspire you to do something different. And there, there's always some way for you to, to have a meaningful experience. And, um, and so I want to wrap this up by actually talking about my mother. And uh, there's been a lot of time tonight talking about getting kids outside and inspiring the next generation. And I want to talk about getting old people outside because yeah. my mom, you know. Yeah. Um, is, my mom, uh, 
randomly started rock climbing when she was 58. Uh, you know, my entire childhood for the, the 15 years that I'd been climbing in the gym all the time and, and climbing nonstop. Oh, excuse me. Uh, mom was never really interested. She was working. She was busy. She had other projects. And then, you know, after me being a professional climber for years, one day she was just like, take me to the climbing gym. I want to try this out. So I was like, okay, you know, like never, never too late to learn. And so I took her in, and, uh, and she wound up falling in with the community of, of people at the gym. She started going out on the weekends all the time, and she's gotten super passionate about climbing, you know, at, at the level of a 64-year-old now, I suppose. So, I mean, you know, it's recreational. She has a good time. But she's still going out regularly. And now I have a partner when I'm back at home. I take my mom, and she plays me at the gym. Which is sweet. But, uh, but so... Mom is lucky enough that her birthday is on September 23rd, which is prime season in the high country in Tuolumne. And so every year she, rent, she gets a campsite. Um, all her friends come from Sacramento, and they all just climb in Tuolumne for, for the week around her birthday. And so each year I've been taking her up some kind of what she considers like a pinnacle route. And they're all the iconic routes in Yosemite. I took her up Snake Dyke on, on, uh, on Half Dome. I took her up uh, Mathis Crest Cathedral Peak. Basically all these iconic routes in, in and around Yosemite. And each year for her, it's the, her, the biggest adventure of the year for her. And because of the, the climbers that she's normally climbing with, none of them really know how to lead climb. They don't really know how to trad climb that well. They're all like very timid because they're all 65-year-old women who started climbing late in life. And so you know, for, for me to take mom out on these adventures is always a huge thing for her. And it's always pushing her right to the very limits of what she can physically do. And I'm always carrying everything and, and strolling with her and feeding her and like talking her through it and sort of pushing her. And she always gets epically worked she just gets destroyed but then she talks about it for the whole year because it's like the big I mean this is her gasping for air climbing uh, the west ridge of of Mount Kness I like to say that I keep her on on an Everest top rope I keep the rope really snug and I basically pull her up here uphill and then she can stop and breathe you know every every couple especially at elevation she finds it very challenging but um, she sent me this photo of her kitchen which uh, you can see all the all the photos on the right side are the summits of these different peaks and so our kitchen now is basically a shrine to these roots that we've done together and these experiences that she's gotten to have in the outdoors and um and I just think it's cool that no matter what age or what ability, anybody can go outside and sort of push themselves in a new way. Uh, so I just want to wrap this up with this last photo. This was taken on Half Dome by Jimmy Chen. Actually, this photo of the kitchen, you can see the National Geographic cover in the far corner because Mother is a big fan, which is a little embarrassing. But so this photo, which, which Jimmy took for National Geographic, was actually taken the same day that I took my mom up Half Dome. Um, Mom and I climbed up Snake Dyke, which is on one side, the easier side of the dome. We got to the summit. Um, we were with another friend of hers. I took them up as a party of three, carrying this enormous backpack full of their stuff so, they, you know, so the climbing would be easier for them. They get to the top. I send them down on their way. And then I met Jimmy and the whole camera crew and, and the whole production. And then we rappelled off the vertical northwest face and then basically shot photos for the whole rest of the day you know, with a beautiful sunset light with like this epic golden glow. And to me, it's just a perfect example of of having this amazing experience with my mother for half the day and then being like, well, now time to rappel into the other side and get, you know, this other level of adventure. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess to me that's what the national parks are all about, being able to go out and sort of choose the appropriate level that that you're willing to push yourself and and then have these transformative experiences. And I just, 
I don't know, it's been inspiring to me to see how much my mom has really like pushed herself. But anyway, um, okay, thank you guys all. Thank you all for supporting the other Thank you guys all. Uh, I guess there's a little bit of Q&A if anybody has anything pertinent they feel like asking. Um, I mean, I know it's super late, so we can just go for, for a minute if anybody's interested. But. Where's your sister? Uh, my sister lives in Portland. She climbs a little bit. And actually, I had some national park photos of climbing with her as well, but she didn't make the cut. But, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what my mom would say if she was here. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think she would be super moved by just the entire community in this room, and I think that's a big part of what's, what really got her into climbing. Um, and actually, I should add that, uh, that mom, sort of embarrassingly, applied for an AAC Live Your Dream grant. And uh, <laughs> and, and uh, even more embarrassingly, actually won it. And then went on, a, went on a road trip on the East Coast, went to the Gunks and to Cathedral and, uh, and basically toured, you know, East Coast climbing. So, I mean, I think that's really what's gotten her into, into this whole sport is just the amazing community and the fact that everybody has embraced her and really, like, welcomed her, welcomed her in. But, um, any other questions? Or should we all just go party? Okay, last one. Yeah. What's next for my mother? For, for I, don't, I don't know exactly what's next for me. I mean, I actually just came from Patagonia. Um, and I have been doing a little bit more alpinism, though I tend to do one trip a year. I mean, I'm definitely not a committed alpinist. It's just like a little adventure every here and again. Um, I mean, most of my big dreams still lie in Yosemite. You know, different styles, bigger roots, whatever. But it, to me, it's just the place that inspires me the most. But, um, yeah. <coughs> Okay, time to. Oh. Sorry, real quick. Yep. I'm so fascinated by what's your mindset like when you're between when you're free solely and when you're bringing up your mother, for example? You mean what's the difference in mindset between casual climbing and full cutting edge performance soloing and things? Well, so I mean, climbing, climbing with my mom is normally an active rest day. You know, I'm basically going hiking with a rope and pulling on the rope a lot and just, you know, it just feels like a fun, casual. I mean, well, I mean, I mean, they're pretty, pretty casual routes. Um, hardcore soloing is like a whole different, I mean, that's something that I have to psychologically prepare for and be super motivated for and, and, and train on and have a high level of fitness. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it. Uh, I don't know, I mean, that's like a whole different talk basically to, to, to get into to what it's like to, to solo at that level and everything. But, um, yeah. Um, I don't really do any training other than climbing. <laughs> um, I try not to. But, but I do a lot of climbing-specific training and opposition and core, things to prevent injuries. But basically, I just climb an, an awfully lot. Like, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, like two more questions, then we go party. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I'm actually not totally sure because uh, I was sort of abroad on expeditions and things as mom sort of transitioned from indoor to, to outdoor climbing. But I don't even know if there was a transition. I think that the people that she started climbing with in the gym just all climbed on the weekends outside, so just instantly. And I mean, certainly um, having me as her son, she was a lot more exposed to the full spectrum of climbing. I think for her, it all just counted as climbing. And for me, it's always been that way, that climbing is just climbing. The styles don't really matter. Indoors or outdoors doesn't really matter. It's all just climbing. It's the physical act of getting up something. And, uh, you know, I think for her, it's just a matter of going where her friends are going and having a good time. But, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, last question. You had a pretty awesome season in Patagonia. What was your personal highlight? My personal highlight of Patagonia this year uh, was probably doing the Tory Traverse with Colin Haley, um, which is something that we attempted last season and uh, wound up wound up having an epic 54-hour failure where uh, we, we got turned around by a storm two pitches from the summit of Saratora and then had to retreat the wrong side of the mountain and then had to walk all the way around the mountain range without food. And so it turned out, last season turned out being a, I mean, one of our best days of climbing in the mountains ever because we both had such a crazy experience, but, um, but we were pretty haggard. So it was very satisfying to go back this year and just climb the traverse totally successfully and, and with food at, at the end. I took a lot more food this time. But, okay, thank you guys all so much, and thank you for the support for the AC, and uh, have a good night. That was Alex Honnold at the American Alpine Club's 2016 Annual Benefit Dinner, presented by the North Face and REI. Special thanks to National Geographic. Also, thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, Mountain House, for their support. Since we last spoke, I cleaned up that biscuits and gravy, and by cleaning up, I mean I ate it all. Not that I did the dishes, because you don't have to do the dishes with Mountain House. You can eat the food directly out of the pouch. Just add hot water, seal it up, and in less than 10 minutes, your food's ready to eat. Mountain House is giving you an exclusive deal, 20% off of your purchase. Go to mountainhouse.com slash meister for the secret code. Again, that's mountainhouse.com slash meister. The link is also on our website. As usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.